0: For patients with we go through his medications,
1: and we notice that he is on uh, two tablets of the 5 milligram Eliquis twice daily.
2: Oh, God. <laughs>
1: in addition to aspirin, right, in addition to aspirin.
2: So
0: someone's trying to kill him. Welcome to the Curbsiders an internal medicine podcast where we deconstruct topics to provide listeners with clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Tony Sideri and Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hey, Matt. Hi. On this episode, we'll be discussing the new oral anticoagulants, which are called NOACs in some of the literature. They're also called direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs. In general, we'll be calling them NOACs or new oral anticoagulants on this episode. I'll give you a brief overview up front to kind of help put things in perspective. The new oral anticoagulants are now becoming widely used largely because they're much more convenient than warfarin and have a similar safety and efficacy. These agents include dabigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and edoxaban. All these agents are approved for non-valvular atrial fibrillation. However, it should be noted that patients with valvular AFib or prosthetic heart valves should not be placed on these agents because trials with the Bigotran showed increased risk of thrombotic complications. And there have not been sufficient trials to say whether there's safety or efficacy to use the 10A inhibitors. The agents are all approved for the treatment of venous thromboembolism. Rivaroxaban and apixaban can be used up front as treatments for venous thromboembolism without any preceding parenteral anticoagulation. However, dabigatran and edoxaban require 5 to 10 days of parenteral anticoagulation with something like unfractionated heparin or a low molecular weight heparin prior to using them. Some of the agents, rivaroxaban and apixaban specifically, are approved for DVT prophylaxis after hip and knee surgery, but none of the agents were approved for DVT prophylaxis in medically ill patients due to increased risk of bleeding complications versus low molecular weight heparin and, of course, versus placebo. So that's a brief overview. On this episode, we don't have a guest per se. Uh, The three of us will be discussing anticoagulation. We'll also be going over a brief Brief summary of the updated chest guidelines, at least the parts that we found most interesting. Since we ran a little long on this one, we'll be splitting it up into two separate episodes. The first one will give you an overview of these new medications and some specifics about the chest guidelines. And the second episode will be discussing an interesting clinical case that we recently had at Cashlack Memorial. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show.
1: But uh, yeah, so th- there's a lot of room in anticoagulation that that really isn't well fleshed out. And interestingly, so looking at the chest guidelines, so you had alluded to the chest guidelines. They updated 2016 chest guidelines. So no longer are uh, vitamin K antagonists um, looked at as being the standard of care for DVT and PE. In fact, they specifically mentioned that, that uh, they would recommend that we use the novel anticoagul- oral anticoagulants now, which I think is a, a remarkable shift in care.
0: So for these for these or- new agents, you just have to be aware that rivaroxaban and apixaban can be used as monotherapy from the beginning, from the time of diagnosis for people with venous thromboembolism. But if you wanted to use dabigatran or edoxaban, they have to have been treated, pre-treated with a parental agent for five to ten days and you'd have to look at the package insert to uh, for the very specifics of that. But uh don't necessarily have to
1: overlap. Right. So in other words they bought themselves a uh, an unnecessary hospitalization or a pick line.
0: Yes. Or you can do what uh what I've done a couple times. I I don't think this is included in the new chest guidelines, but the in the prior chest guidelines, they still had in that you could use subcutaneous unfractionated heparin, which, um, I've used a couple times. It actually does get you a therapeutic PTT. It's a weight, weight-based dose and you can, uh, it's dosed twice daily, just like Lovenox. Um, and it's, it's safe for patients with renal insufficiency. So that is a, another potential option to get patients out of the hospital, but
1: or you it, could just put them on a Pixaban.
0: It makes people nervous because they're uh, people are not used to giving that, so they get they get nervous giving the sub Q unfractionated heparin. But <laughs> right, I think it's more convenient than getting PTTs drawn every six hours and all that stuff. So basically, they're now they're now just saying that compression stockings, uh, specifically to prevent post thrombotic syndrome, that's sort of. Kind of falling out of favor now in, in these new guidelines if patients if you read a little further into it they do say that for patients who have acute or chronic DVT with symptoms you can still consider compression stockings but if you're just trying to prevent a post thrombotic syndrome the evidence really isn't there so they're no longer recommending them for that purpose that's
2: boring yeah but but then I, the uh, the new isolated Subsegmental pulmonary embolism treatment recommendations. I hear you yeah. have a case.
0: Well, that yes. So this, I think, this was meant meant maybe to try to make things easier, but I think in practice, it's probably going to c- create some confusion because they're now giving you the option for patients with subsegmental PE, uh, of which they believe at least some percentage are going to be false positives. They're they're giving you the option that for patients who are low risk, maybe don't give them any anticoagulation at all, and you can even offer them surveillance ultrasounds. But they're kind of vague about what that entails exactly, how often these surveillance ultrasounds need to be done, and what that the, what that would look like. So we had a patient at at Cashlack a couple weeks back who came in. He did have symptoms of PE and had no proximal DVT when we scanned his legs. Uh, we felt he was low risk. He, his DVT had and PE had probably been promote, provoked by a plane flight. So we had a conversation with him giving him the option, listen, you've had this potentially small subsegmental PE. It seems like that could have been causing some of your symptoms here. Um, we ended up treating him for three months of anticoagulation for, uh, for that subsegmental PE. But- had he had no symptoms and it was just an incidental finding on a CT angio, we would have had the option of not treating him at all.
1: How do they define subsegmental?
0: Well, it's not involving... So just, so, a, it's in the uh, subsegmental so just not,
2: not, area. <laughs> okay. So it, it's, it's a subsegment. I believe right.
0: sub means... Below, so it's it's below the segment. Oh.
1: <laughs> and segment Excellent. is a piece okay. of. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I mean, are, are they defining it as below the level of the main pulmon, uh, pulmonary artery? Because so, are they basically saying not a saddle embolism?
0: No, it's. I think it's a little different than that. They're saying it's it's not involving any of the larger proximal arteries, and I okay. think I think that's more of, for radiologists to know what to call it. They seem to because
2: they they seem to be very able to well, call yeah in. but
1: yeah, so, so okay so here's the problem so at cashlack when we're in hospital so we have radiology residents that almost invariably will read a CTPE PE is saying cannot rule out subsegmental PE
0: well that's not what they're talking about they're they're saying when the radiologist is uh, feels inclined to call it a subsegmental PE then then you have to in your mind, and they it, you have to read a little deeper into the chest guidelines here because they list a whole bunch of things like if they're high if there's a high, if they're high probability, if they've been immobilized, if they're if they have cancer, um, okay, if the study yeah. if the study was well timed, you know that would make you more likely to call this a real PE and potentially treat it. But for patients where it kind of doesn't make sense, they were low risk. Uh, maybe the study uh, study wasn't great, and they have good cardiopulmonary reserve. Then those patients you can potentially not treat. So I think this will, for a small segment of patients, I think this might actually prevent. Uh, and I'm sure for if you're an emergency medicine physician, it's probably going to affect their practice a lot more than us for internal medicine because a lot of the patients we get um, at least getting admitted to our hospital wards. Um, the subsegmental PE thing. Usually, they're getting admitted because they're symptomatic from it, and uh, I, I think it's not going to affect us as much. But you know, we we know the ER, the ERs. Anyone that comes in tachycardic and short of breath, uh, there's a high percentage of those people that get these CTs, and a lot of them come back with this possible subsegmental PE, and then those patients are getting anticoagulated. So I think this is trying to prevent that, but. The trials there's no, they're, they're not randomized trials that they're quoting here, so they're they're calling it low quality evidence. So you, you do have to be be careful and certainly involve the patient in the decision making if you're if you're going to decide to follow this and And then as far, Tony and I were talking about this today, as far as when to I, I looked at the articles that they cited and I they didn't really specifically outline how often this serial lower extremity DVT, study can be done i know that uh tony and i were talking about yeah, over we the course two, of two we weeks We were talking
2: about, uh, wait. <laughs>
1: well it's, it's it's just funny the way you, you said it you said how frequently can it be done well it can be done every hour on the hour if you really want it to i thought, how, how, mean, how frequently how, should oh, it be done they don't. There they you didn't go. really we
2: define. We could do a continuous.
1: Yeah. Continuous.
0: Just. Uh, I want to watch it disappear. <laughs> yeah. Or grow. <laughs> so We're for patients, you know, for patients with uh, uh, below the knee DVT, the distal DVT, you can you can do a scan, one or two scans over the course of two weeks, and if it doesn't progress above the knee, then then some of those patients can you, you can forego treatment, and I think maybe. Maybe you can extrapolate that to the, to these patients. If if you don't see a proximal DVT over the course of two weeks, they're probably not going to develop one. But I don't know. It's a little. It, it might make me a little nervous, depending on the patient.
2: Almost sounds like a good case for a dogma buster.
1: I was going to say, almost yeah. sounds like a good case for a rap song. If you don't see a proximal DVT, blue knee. <laughs> <What? laughs>
0: <laughs> I forgot about your beatboxing and. uh battle oh,
1: rapping so good. Stuart <laughs> hold on a second I gotta we gotta do this let's see okay so hold on C DBT knee what else do we have I'll figure this one out guys you keep going uh,
0: are, are you composing lyrics um okay mm-hmm.
1: so Stuart if you don't see a proximal DBT okay above the knee then right, you're so home many- free. Then you're home. Excellent.
0: <laughs> so to summarize the the new chess guidelines the the main the main things that changed were this compression stockings to prevent post thrombotic syndrome not necessary prioritize the new oral anticoagulants uh, ahead of warfarin for patients without cancer who have venous thromboembolism and then for patients with this isolated isolated subsegmental PE you you don't necessarily have to treat all comers there but definitely you're going to need to do some clinical decision making and involve the patient so We've ta- we have mentioned all the new oral anticoagulants, but Stuart, I just wanted you to comment a little bit on, on warfarin and how do you think this medicine is going to hang around, or do you think it's going to be sort of uh, it's going to be sort of pushed out of out of the common use by these newer agents? So,
1: I, well, so if you read the chest guidelines, then yes, I, I do think that warfarin is going to fall of favor. Having said that, the warfarin is still cheap. It's, it's still much much cheaper than the, uh, the novel oral anticoagulants. Until they, they start going generic, then I, I still think it's probably going to be the preferred medication. And a lot of our older patients are just used to it. Um, I think over time, we're going to start seeing it used less and less. And the newer medications are going to take more of a, I, I, for lack of a better term, a market share for anticoagulants. Um, and the other thing we have to look at is that warfarin, the initial studies of warfarin, uh, when you go back to the 1980s, 1990s, you're talking small trials in the range of 2,000, 3,000 patients, comparing it to aspirin or placebo. So those were not really good, high-quality trials. When we look at the newer NOACs, we're looking at very high-quality trials in the range of 15,000 patients, 20,000 patients, and we're comparing it to the standard of care, warfarin. So, And we're finding that in many cases, it's not just non-inferior, but in the case of a PIXPEN, it's, it is superior. And we're, as we hone these medications, anticoagulation is going to become... It's, it's it's going to become a, a pretty precise science. It, certainly it's not going to be 100%, but it's going to be precise. We're going to hone it more and more as time goes on. So I do think it's going to become less frequent. Community clinics are going to be less uh, ubiquitous in um, our hospitals across the nation. And uh, I, I think it's probably much for the better. Um, there are certainly some patients that that still need cumadin. and um for those patients we we will probably have to have specialized centers that will manage cumadin, but in general, I, I think it will it, it will fall out of favor
0: yeah i, I think I think you're right there uh, the The cost thing is still probably a big issue for some hospitals in my residency training we we did not have access to the these newer agents unless you really prove that someone had this labile INR and, and was just unable to be controlled. So yeah. even, even if it meant a hospital stay, uh, that person would be, would be in the hospital until their INR was therapeutic. So it's, I think that's still going to be a big, a big, uh, barrier in some centers. And then the other thing you were mentioning c- certain indications like mechanical heart valves. Right. Um,
1: right. And, 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 that's going to be, yeah. It, so it, 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 it's worth noting that you cannot use a NOAC for mechanical heart valves. I think you had, uh, this is something that you and I have talked about before with Pradaxa. I think you, you, you've stated it well before, and I think you can go ahead and. Well, yeah, talk basically, about here.
0: Basically, with mechanical heart valves, Pradaxa, uh, in patients with mechanical heart valves, Pradaxa showed some adverse events, uh, increased cardiovascular events. So th- those trials. Based, based on those trials they didn't they have not even done them with the other oral anticoagulants and i think it might be a while before people are brave enough to do that or i i don't know if it will will ever be done but there's probably there probably are some patients that out there that have these agents being used off label for with mechanical heart valves maybe for convenience sake sake but i don't i don't specifically have any in my
1: practice right Sorry, sorry, I know you can probably hear me um, okay. we all we always love your typing so uh, that's the uh, conclusion
2: of the anticoagulation wrap. can't wait to hear it later
1: I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure, and that's probably me in it too um, <laughs> so and there's a couple of other things to mention about vitamin K antagonists as well and it's it's important to un- understand which patients are going to be labile and this is something that I've talked to you guys ad nauseum in the past that those patients that have any type of uh, gastric bypass surgery specifically um, uh, Bill Roth 2 procedures or a Ruin Y procedure anything that's going to affect the ileal absorption so even regional ileitis or uh, Crohn's disease so those disease entities are going to change the intestinal lining and affect your ability to absorb vitamin K in a manner that's predictable. So you don't know what their INR is going to be. And At one time it could be five and a week later it's going to be one and a half. It's, it, it would be very difficult to estimate what their INR is going to be and those patients should probably not be on a vitamin K antagonist and may benefit more from some of the, the NOACs. Granted, there's a positive data when we look at those those kinds of patients. You know, Are, are those patients safer taking Pradaxa or are they safer taking Apixaban? And I don't have an answer to that question. I don't think anyone does at this point. Um, and this also kind of leads us into Pradaxa. And I, I know that you two know that I don't really like Pradaxa. Having said that though, it, it may just be a personal bias that I have against Pradaxa. The uh, evidence doesn't necessarily necessarily show um, the concerns that I have, but I wonder if it's just because the data is not not there for us to uh, investigate. So one of the problems with Pradaxa is that it has a carboxylic uh, acid group, a COOH group on on the end, and and thus it's it's pH sensitive. And a lot of these patients they have uh, a lot of GI intolerance with Pradaxa. They're on PPI. They're on H2 blockers, and the initial studies, the RELI trial actually showed in the, uh, the supplementary material that, that Pradaxa actually has a pretty significant decreased uh, GI absorption for these patients. Now, whether this is clinically significant or not, I don't know if the data has really panned out or whether it's been fully investigated, but one of the concerns that I have is that if these patients have you know a 15 to, uh, some sources say, up to 30% decreased GI absorption, that's a concern of mine. Because I, I don't know if that's, is, is that clinically significant or not. So generally, I stay away from pradaxa because of the, the GI issues with it, because of the uh, upset stomach that a lot of my patients tend to have have got when when we initially placed them on Pranaxa when it hit the market. Um, and they seem to do better on the factor 10 inhibitors. So in general, I, I, I tend to stay away from pradaxa and rely more on the, factor 10, a, 10 a inhibitors lately uh Xarelto or rivaroxaban and Eliquis or pixaban cevesa or doxaban isn't it, it unfortunately it's not available at cash slack mortal hospital because we lack the cash to get that medication
0: right so some other things that i just wanted to hit upon uh with these with these new uh new oral anticoagulants which we we've been referring to as no the just some of the considerations we we sort of hit on it um definitely Check for each individual agent uh, whether or not it can be used at a given GFR. Generally, if the if the GFR is less than thirty, you're going to really uh, be hesitant to use them. Um, and then there are some significant drug interactions, particularly through the the P four fifty system in the liver. So certain medications that can induce strongly induce or inhibit that can also cause your your levels to be either be too high or too low with these agents which is potentially dangerous so,
2: so rivaroxaban lovers watch out
0: right so some of the <laughs> some of the medications so if some of the medications like the azoles like uh ketoconazole fluconazole uh verapamil um patient drugs that our patients are pretty commonly uh exposed to at one point or another and uh stewart so a main, yeah. I think, a main thing that probably limits patients. One of the one of the two main things I think that probably limits pa- people from using these agents. Uh, probably un- un- being unfamiliar with them, um, maybe not knowing how to counsel patients on some of the adverse effects. So I definitely want to talk about that. Like, how do you when you're going to start, let's say, a apixaban and a patient who just gets diagnosed with AFib? Do you have like a stock, a stock phrase that you tell them, or uh, something that that you know, our listeners can use in their practice.
1: Um, one of the things that I talked to them about is uh, simply com- the, the fact that, uh, um, so the first thing that you want to do whenever you start a patient on anticoagulation is to assess their understanding of really the basic of what exactly is going on in the body. And As a physician, you need to understand the difference between anticoagulation therapy and antiplatelet therapy and the indications for either or. The initial trials, so if you look at Aristotle, only about 30% of the patients were on antiplatelet therapy when they were placed on the anticoagulant. So not all patients that are on anticoagulation require an antiplatelet, even though the average age of those patients would have suggested that they would have been on an antiplatelet. So that's one thing that's important is to discuss the differences between, between these two agents because if the patient has an indication for an antiplatelet agent, they may be questioning why you're recommending an anticoagulant. The other thing that I do, and this is one of the most helpful tools that I use when I talk to my patients, and this alone is probably the most beneficial thing that I use and will save you an inordinate amount of time in talking to your patients, and it's just a simple tool that I use online. It's called the Spark tool. It's S P A R C T O O L dot the Spark Tool, and this is an excellent tool. And it compares the um, it compares aspirin, dual antiplatelet therapy, Coumadin, Pradaxa, Apixaban, Rivaroxaban, ADOXaban, low and high dosage, and compares all of them. puts them in a tabular format that you can actually show it to the patients, and it's very useful. And it can it can also be fairly highlighting or it it can also be uh, fairly uh, um, enlightening for the physician as well to go through these agents. So it 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 helps it'll calculate the CHAD score, the CHAD's the CHAD's two VAS score, and the HASBLED score, and it puts all these into a into a table, and it will give you a yearly risk for stroke. For uh, both those scores and for the yearly risk for a massive or major GI bleed, and going over these uh, these results for the patients can help to direct your therapy. Um, so you know that alone. If I were to recommend one thing to any of the any physician who would go over to these agents, would be to, to look at this tool and look at some of the references in the bottom and read through the references and consider using this tool in their daily practice when they talk to their their patients, and
0: th- and this is specifically for patients when you're counseling about AFib. It's not not necessarily Correct. not necessarily bleeding risk for uh, patients with with uh, DVT PE.
1: Correct. Yes. Now you can extrapolate what someone's bleeding risk is um, based off of what their uh, uh, based off of uh, their has blood score. But you're right. It is not. Um, it has not been validated in anything aside from from uh, atrial fibrillation patients. So, um, And having said that, if you look at the recommendations for DBTPE, the recommendations um, are actually to use um, are, are to not use the, the vitamin K antagonists for those, those cases anyways. So mm-hmm. when I would talk to my patients about that, I would simply say, well, this is not the standard of care anymore. Standard of care is not to use a vitamin K antagonist, but actually to use these NOACS. And and I would dictate or I would direct the uh, um, uh, the direction that the um, discussion would go based off of whether they would have any issues with polypharmacy or not. So if they would have issues with polypharmacy, I would talk about either a doxaban or rivaroxaban because it's, it's once daily. Um, if they don't have any issues with polypharmacy, the 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 best medication to use in this in that case and the best studied for DVT PE is apixaban. Mm-hmm.
0: And then so, the the other the other issue with these agents uh bleeding risk so overall bleeding risk and then that's of course something people worry about and then particularly intracranial hemorrhage which you could split into subdural hematoma or intracerebral hemorrhage so overall is the overall bleeding risk with these agents higher than than warfarin
1: so it, it depends. Now, you can certainly break these out and look at the uh, um, individual agents. Okay, so l- let's look at intracranial hemorrhage. In general, the newer fac inhibitors are better than warfarin when you look at intracranial hemorrhage. In general, okay? As a class, they are... In- so think about these as a class. Try not to think about these as individual agents with the exception of maybe a apixaban. So when we look at a apixaban, it, it probably has... Now, the the evidence suggests that it has a lower GI bleeding risk than warfarin, whereas the other agents have the same, if not maybe a slightly higher risk for non-major GI uh, um, non-major bleeding risk GI bleeding risk. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at dabigatran, now you, remember dabigatran is not one size fits all. There's your um, low dose and high dose. Generally, we, we don't talk about the 110 milligram versus the 150 milligram, but if you look at the 110 milligram for someone who has uh, normal renal function, um, it generally actually has a lower um, bleeding risk than, than warfarin. But then you have to look at what their, what their risk reduction is for um, 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 cardioembolism, at least in atrial fibrillation. So, in general, the uh, factor ten inhibitors are no no worse than cumin when it looks at when you look at bleeding risk. Certainly, they're worse than placebo because sure. they are anticoagulants, right? Right. Uh, and that's certainly something that you need to talk to your patients about because if you don't, and they leave the hospital and then they call one eight hundred bad drug, you're going to get sued. Yeah. So make make sure that you talk to them about that. And it, it's it, it, you know you laugh, but if you don't document that, then there go, there goes your license essentially. It's going to be very difficult to defend that if you have not counseled your patient on the fact that they are taking an anticoagulant and their bleeding risk is going to go up. So their risk for major bleed, GI bleed, um, non-fatal bleed, intracranial hemorrhage, all of those go up. There's no way to, to go around that. The risk for having even just simple uh, uh, hematoma. So epistaxis is going to go up. Um Uh, bleeding with minor trauma is going to go up Uh, across the board. The bleeding risk is going to go up. Then you've got to make sure that you counsel them on that, or that could potentially come back and bite you. And,
0: and there's a number of studies. If you look out there in the literature, looking at patients at high fall risk, everyone thinks you can't put these patients on oral anticoagulants. And basically one of the, one of the studies, which is it's a retrospective study and, Definitely has, has some fancy statistics in it, but uh, it's from 1999, Archives of Internal Medicine, uh, where they did this Markov decision analysis and looked at fall risk. And basically, they found out, they figured out that you have to fall in order to have the, the risk for subdural hematoma outweigh the benefits of oral anticoagulants. Patients would have to fall about 295 times in one year for warfarin not to be worth it they were specifically looking at warfarin in that study so obviously it's retrospective they're using fancy stats they were looking back at uh at randomized controlled trials and case series that had been done in some of the afib trials so that's where they got their data from but that that study there's been some others looking at patients at high fall risk um over throughout the past couple years we can we'll link to these in the show notes but basically uh retrospective or prospective series of thousands of patients and, and really not seeing, not seeing an increased risk of, well, the, the overall, the overall like sort of synopsis of this is intracranial bleeds are rare. Intracranial bleeds related to falls are even more rare. And possibly the reason that physicians worry about these so much is because when they do see them, it's like a, a traumatic event and very profound event uh, for a physician, probably a lot of guilt associated. So that's that probably is leading a lot of people not to be put on agents. But some of these have looked at patients at high fall risk and found that they did not have any significant increased risk of major bleeding or even intracranial bleeding. So I think we really have to think about um, there. there is a lot of benefit for these patients when we're talking about AFib and preventing stroke. And probably, probably we're wimping out a little bit on putting patients on anticoagulants. And most of these studies looked at patients on warfarin. But uh, if we're, we're talking about uh, the bleeding, when we look at all these trials, the bleeding is not that much worse with the new oral anticoagulants. And the intracranial bleeding risk is lower. So if you you can potentially extrapolate that and say, well, they're probably no worse than warfarin in these trials. So they're probably also they're probably also appropriate to be using, even if the patient has some fall risk.
1: Right. Now keep in mind, even though the number two hundred and ninety-five seems inordinately high, let's say your patient has has Parkinson's and is um, unsteady at baseline it, maybe they are falling several times a day it, it is reasonable to think that they may have well over 295 falls in a given year. So make sure that you consider that when you're when you're considering placing them on anticoagulation. If they are an inordinately high fall risk, they still may not need you, you still may need to weigh the, the risks and benefits of these anticoagulants with these patients. Okay,
0: so. I think we've I think we've covered a lot here. Did you want to let us hear your rap that you've been composing?
1: Oh no no no! I I uh, I think I'm just going to do the outro this okay. time. Okay. Okay. I, I, I actually have the script at this time.
2: Did you, All did right. You, did, you, did you have you looked at the script?
1: Um, I I just I actually just now pulled it up. All right, I'm ready.
2: <laughs> Go ahead
1: this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole you can find the show notes along with links to any books websites or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com please subscribe to us on itunes and don't forget to leave us a review this helps others discover the show you can also follow us on facebook linkedin twitter or google plus for information about upcoming podcasts as well as interesting articles that we have found until next time i've been dr Stuart brigham if you don't see a proximal dvt above the knee then you're home free I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. I've been
2: Dr. Tony Sideri.